please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 14, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 14, as we continue with the Apostle Paul's exhortation to flee from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Ever let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Please be seated. Now, in a survey that was taken several years ago, a representative sample of 3,000 Americans, evangelical Americans, were asked about their views on a series of theological statements, and one of those was, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And some 51% of the respondents were shown to agree with that statement. So it was actually up from 49% several years before. Well, I wouldn't say that 49 to 51%, if it started at 49, is really uh, all that much different. 51% people saying, look, God will receive worship from any religion. doesn't matter which one. Of course, we understand that the Bible disagrees with that statement. That is that God receives worship in only one way, through Jesus. There's only one person through whom worship may be given. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, 51 of representative evangelicals, 51% said, oh, yeah, that's, that's acceptable. God will receive that worship. Well, maybe even more troubling is that the vast majority of evangelicals, again, according to that survey, all right, believe this particular statement, all right, that men are by nature good. 78% supported the idea that men are by nature good. And then they supported this statement, even more tragically and really even more amazingly, that Jesus is the highest of the creations of God. That he's the first and greatest being ever created by God the Father. 78% of evangelicals. Now I'm wondering, did they include Jehovah's Witnesses? And in who did they include in that? And we understand, of course, that evangelical is a very broad uh, distinction. Right? Many, most Americans, even today, would probably consider themselves some level of evangelical. Yet, the idea that those, those statements would even at any level be considered correct is a sign of, of one major issue. People do not believe, do not read, and do not understand their Bibles. They hear things from other people, they hear things off the internet, they hear things that they grew up with, right? Many of those professing Jesus are not able to fill in the content of who Jesus was. And I submit to you that if you believe in a Jesus who is not fully God, who is a created being, then you are not a Christian. You are not an evangelical of any real sort. Who Jesus is matters and understanding who he is matters. And the only way we understand that is through the Bible. The gospel is what matters. That is the Bible and it's teaching about who Jesus is and what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection, properly understood, properly interpreted. Not just words about Jesus, not just words about people. And the reason we need Jesus is because we are sinners to the core. 
Modern Christianity goes wrong at exactly the point that it ceases to take every word and instruction of God seriously. We're ever and always a people of the book. And our only hope amidst the shifting sands of culture is to remain anchored in the truth of God's word properly interpreted. Of course, this begs the question, can God's word be properly interpreted or are we hopelessly lost in a tangle of hermeneutical approaches which leave everything uncertain? This is what the world will tell you. This is what the evangelical world would tell you. Nobody can really understand with certainty what the Bible means. It's your interpretation. Well, if that is true, then there's no Bible. A Bible without the ability to be interpreted, the one meaning that the Bible has, is not really a Bible at all. It's a series of opinions, your opinion about it. So that's one way through the back door to deny the impact of biblical inerrancy, which many believers still even hold to, or many professing Christians. The Bible's inerrant. We just can't understand it. Well, it doesn't matter if it's inerrant, if it isn't possibly understood. So the answer is to return to a hermeneutical sanity, I've called it, right? Understanding how to interpret the word of God, which avoids the extremes of a wooden literalism, but also on the other side, an unwarranted allegorical approach and carefully determines the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual meaning of each passage of scripture for the purpose of understanding and application to daily living. We must be able to understand what this means or you this morning are wasting your time. All of it. Right? If we don't really understand what this means, well, it, is, it can be understood. God wrote it in language that can be understood, and we are able to then interpret it. So what we'll see this morning is that the Bible is God's word to us, by which he encourages us in the blessings of obedience and warns us against the consequences of sin. Thus, we must be careful to study, understand, and apply his word properly so that our lives will bring him the glory that he deserves. The Bible is God's word to us by which he encourages us in the blessings of obedience, warns us against the consequences of sin, and thus we must be careful to study, understand, and apply his word properly so that our lives will bring him the glory that he so richly deserves. God is most glorified when we most carefully obey his word. Now, the Apostle Paul has been waxing eloquent on the Word of God in the Word of God. So as an apostle, he's writing the Word, but he's also commending the Old Testament to the Corinthians. What happened to the, God's ethnic people in the Old Testament is an example for you. Pay attention. Make sure you are reading your Bibles because he will say, when we end this morning, he says in verse 11, these things were written for your instruction. There's a reason they're here, Old and New Testaments. And so we do well to pay close attention to them. And we've been working our way through even an understanding of how we know how to interpret the Old Testament. Paul's interpreting it in a, in a certain way. It's literal. Right? Those things actually happened. It's grammatical. The things that it says happened actually happened to them. Right? Not some mythical thing, but some real thing. Even the idea that Christ was with them. There's, there's certainly there is a, uh, a picture there, Christ as the spiritual rock, but it says spiritual rock. Jesus was there making provision through the physical rock as the one who gave them water and the one who gave them manna. So we have a way of interpreting, a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual way of interpreting the Old Testament, and we interpret both old and new in that same way. This is vital because if we don't, we miss the lessons that are here. And Paul isn't just interpreting or using these things to show off his chops in understanding the Old Testament. Look down in verse 5. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. He says, look, you need to beware of God's judgment. I'm telling you about these things for a particular reason. That is that God judged his people in the Old Testament, his chosen ethnic people, and he will judge you for your sin. He continues to be the God who brings judgment upon sin. For Christians, discipline, for unbelievers, judgment, and ultimately the judgment of hell. 
So he says, beware of God's judgment. With most of them, God's, the people that he chose, the people that were identified with him through Moses, right, in the cloud and in the sea, he brings them out of Egypt with tremendous power in the 10 plagues. He brings them safely by, by causing the Red Sea to pile up on either side and brings them through and drowns the Egyptians. He protects them and guides them with the cloud, the Lord Jesus really directing and guiding them as the angel of the Lord through the difficult passages that they had. In all of these ways, he demonstrated his care and his love for them. And yet, when they sinned, he brought his discipline upon them. Paul's saying, this is for you to pay attention to. You too are God's chosen people. You are a spiritual chosen people, the spiritual seed of Abraham. And God too will respond to your sin. He says their bodies were, they were laid low in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered across the wilderness. A very graphic picture of 90, you know, we were doing the math, 90 people a day dying. Everyone over the age of 20 dying before they enter into the promised land. God was not pleased, even though they were his people. Do not think that you can hide underneath the moniker of being of the people of God and sin with impunity. Sin and commit um, immorality and idolatry and, as we will see, grumbling and trying the Lord, and that somehow God will not hold you to account for that. So he wanted them to be aware of God's judgment, and then this was several weeks ago, to comprehend God's purpose in this. He said, verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us. Not some just big picture of overall redemptive themes, but examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. There's a moral lesson to be drawn. God's chosen ethnic people, Israel, craved evil things. God judged them for that in the wilderness. We as his people today, chosen by God in Christ through virtue of repentance and belief in Jesus and what he did, we too will receive God's disciplining hand if we choose to indulge in the sins that God hates and the sins for which Jesus died. So he says, look, they're an example. An example of how God treats his chosen people when they sin. An example of God's hatred of and displeasure with all sin. An example of the fact that idolatry and sinful behavior are possible even when one has received tremendous spiritual blessing. The Israelites saw that. They saw that God had taken them through. They saw the miraculous things done and they still turned away from him. Guys, we have seen in the pages of scripture the work of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the establishment of Christ's church and, and the coming of the spirit of Christ to live inside of us. We've seen all of these blessings, yet we too, if we are not careful, can turn away towards things that God hates. You know this to be true. Our hearts remain plagued by sin. And so we must be careful that we don't just simply name the name of Jesus and say, well, I'm in the church and I have all these benefits and I can do what I want. That's what the Corinthians were saying. He's not writing this for no reason. In chapter six, we see they're consorting with prostitutes. In chapter five, we saw in the church, they were actually allowing an incestuous relationship to go on and they were proclaiming it as, as their, most likely their grace and allowing that to happen as something that was good. They were, they were taking each other to court, lawsuits against one another. Paul says, you, you can't act this way. And then in chapter 8, he begins to deal with the idea that they're going back to the temples to celebrate the feasts that they were giving to these gods and saying, hey, we can eat the meat because there aren't any real gods. We can sacrifice and go back and be part of these sacrifices because we understand there's only one God and so we're okay. And Paul says, you are not. You may not try the Lord in this way. Israel tried this. Look how it worked out. Don't think that you can do this as well. Again, this chapter being possibly the most sobering warning, this in, in chapter 11, in all of Scripture. And certainly for the New Testament church. So he says, look, these are things that I am telling you so that you will not crave evil things. Why? Because as believers, we can and do crave evil things. 
Right? Not totally. We're not given over. We have new hearts. They've been changed. But our sinful flesh remains. And so we cannot simply pull the I'm a believer card, I'm in church card, I read the Bible card, even when we are true believers. And say, hey, that's going to that's take care of my sin. God's not, he's going to overlook it. Well, he's going to bring his temporal judgments upon our sin, even as his people. So he says, look, avoid Israel's sin. And we began with the first illustration a couple weeks ago where he says, do not be idolaters. These are commands. And he's, the commands are to the Corinthians. Right? He's using the example of Israel, but the commands are to his own people. And I would say these commands directly apply straight across the board to you. There's no you know, fancy hermeneutical bridges that have to be crossed. No, you know, well, what with the Old Testament law and the New? No, these are direct commands to you today. Do not be an idolater. He's giving those to his people. New Testament church, Corinth. Comes to us today, New Testament church, Grace Community Church. So that was the first one. Now, what was the evil in the idolatry? Several things here. What are the, what's the evil desire? They certainly wanted the comfort and security of a God they could see and touch. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. He's gone. They're not allowed to see God. God had no represent, representations, no images. I'm like, hey, we'll make one because we don't like serving a God that we cannot see or touch. Well, that's certainly true for us, is it not? How would we be able to touch and see the God that we would serve? So we want to create things that we can do that with. Well, they certainly did. But really what Paul focuses on in their sin of idolatry is the fact that they were unrestrained in their sensuality in practicing their worship to a false representation of God because Aaron says, look, this is your God, Yahweh. This is the true God in this false representation, but also a false worship. It says the people, the, the line he quotes, what was written down, by the way, he's quoting a line they could go back and in their day and age, look at their Hebrew manuscript and read, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. They were unrestrained in their sensuality, in their worship, which is exactly what was happening at Corinth. They were going back to these festivals with this unrestrained, they're you know, eating the food, having the sacrifice, engaging oftentimes in sexual immorality. So look, it's, it's almost exactly the same, except those were God's chosen people, you're God's chosen people, why are you doing that? Why are you unrestrained in your sensuality? And of course, this is how we want to worship. We just simply want to, to take off all the restraints and worship in whatever way our sensual desires would want. And the world accommodates this in every way. Religions accommodate it. And then you can just remove the religion and just have the religion be your pursuit of sensual desire. See, that's what we've done. Right? In, in the past, and in certainly countries today, but not so much in the United States, religious worship was linked with abandonment to sensuality, most specifically sexual morality. So you would have the religious worship almost as an excuse to engage in sexual immorality. Well, today, we've eliminated the middleman again. We don't have a religion plus sexual immorality. Our religion is sexual immorality. It is. That's, that's America's religion. They love sexual immorality in every way. It's placed it on an every billboard, continually on your social media, everywhere you want to look, and it's trumpeted as what is right and good. It is our religion. Of course, it's a reflection of our desire to be unchained from God. That's what sexual morality is. God, you made me male and female. You made us male and female. You created us in a certain way to interact with each other at the deepest levels of intimacy as male and female. We reject that either by pursuing sexual immorality outside of marriage, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, or before marriage, or in some other fashion. And their idolatry was directly linked to their immorality, which is why Paul next, I'm convinced, brings up the next command. So idolatry, which was linked directly, that they were, they were getting up to play. Remember, Moses and Joshua up on the mountain, and Joshua says, there's a sound of tumult in the camp. Perhaps there's war. I mean, they were that out of control. 
And God says, no, that's not, that's not war. The people are out of control. You need to go down. And they had to go down and slay the people to get them back under control. That's what their worship was like. Well, our whole society is like that. Out of control in a frenzy of idolatry, which leads to always alongside immorality. Because to worship a false god is ultimately to deny the way that God has made us, male and female, and to pervert our sexuality. So he says, do not be immoral. Right? Let us not act, command, immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Now he doesn't give the penalty in verse seven. Here's the sin, idolatry, no specific penalty. And I think because it's gonna be linked to the immorality here in verse eight, a different time when they committed immorality, but also linked to idolatry. So here he gives the penalty. When they did this second incident or the second thing he commands them not to do, 23,000 fell in one day. There was a response of God. He judged his own people, his ethnic chosen people, and 23,000 fell. Now, what incident would this be? This is almost certainly Numbers 25. So go ahead and turn there because he identifies for us here the penalty, and so we know which particular incident he's talking about. He identified it in verse 7 when he wrote down exactly what happened. Here, by the penalty, it reveals to us what the actual incident was. So Numbers 25, and this, this particular incident is referred to over and over in Scripture as really kind of the foundational nature of what immorality when combined with idolatry is, what actually happens, and that God, God's people can actually enter into this kind of immorality. Numbers 25, now while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Well, why? Because... Balak, the king of Moab, had paid Balaam, a pagan prophet, to curse the people, and he couldn't because the, the Spirit of God co-opted his language, and he actually had to bless the people, but then Balaam comes back around and says, hey, I'd like my payment, so here's what you do. You send your women down, combine the harlotry that your women will, will engage in along with some religious sacrifices to your gods, and you will ensnare Israel. They will get involved with you because of their sensual desires, and God will judge them himself. God will bring the curse, and it worked. It's exactly what happened. So the Moabites send their women, right? The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They began to have, they commit sexual immorality with prostitutes from Moab, but what was it built around? Verse two, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The people, Israel, Right, so while the Moabites were doing this, so did they. So now they're not pretending this is an idol that's to the real God. These are just to Moabite gods, Baal. And they're bowing down, the Israelites are, because they're ensnared through their sensuality, their desire to be able to see and touch and feel, to be part of their culture, to be engaged in sexual immorality while they worship. All of those things are a horrible brew which brings about this rampant immorality. So there's kind of a play on words here when it says, uh, verse Three says, so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord was angry with Israel. That joining there is both metaphorical, that is spiritually they were bowing down to these idols and physically they were engaging in sexual immorality. They were joining themselves to the prostitutes. And often in scripture, we understand that, that to turn away from the Lord, idolatry is seen as what? Spiritual adultery. Well, here's just being added, those two are happening together. A spiritual adultery immorality and a physical immorality that go along. And again, this is how society works, fundamentally. God's chosen people, however, are never to engage in this kind of behavior, ever, in any form, anywhere, at any time. And here you have the Israelites bowing down to Baal and being involved sexually in that 
so-called worship. Verse four, the Lord, was, Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord. Why? So that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. What we'll find out in the two verses is that God's plague was already descending upon them. He was beginning to judge them at that moment. He says, look, you better, you better execute the leaders quickly because if you don't do that, the plague is going to continue. It, it could consume them all. So obey me quickly. Then behold, uh, one of the, uh, Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his man who have joined themselves to Baal Peor, the leaders who are engaged in the sexual and spiritual immorality. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel, notice, highlight, sons of Israel, not a Moabite, not some foreign person engaged in this. One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So some are weeping over the sin. This man with a high hand brings this prostitute into his tent in front of everyone. I'm worshiping these false gods. I'm allowed to do this. Yes, I'm a child of Israel. I'm a, one of God's chosen people, but I can do this thing. I can commit this kind of immorality and there will be no price. When Phineas the son, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest saw it, he rose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel, again that's noted, into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. You will notice that it wasn't just the woman who was judged. It was the man of Israel. Both of them speared through in this act of physical immorality, which was an act of spiritual immorality. And not only that, but while that was going on, people were dropping dead. And when that happened, the plague stopped. So those who died by the plague were 24,000. Because God takes sin very seriously. He took it seriously back then. He takes it seriously now. The people of God may not engage in the immorality that goes on in the culture. The culture does these things. We understand this. Why would they do anything differently? They are unaccountable to God. It's why they set God aside so they can engage in immorality. How can we, as God's people, who have acknowledged God ourselves, engage back in the kinds of immorality of our culture? We must not. And by the way, I would say I believe most of you are not. This is not the, well, I'm sure everybody here is somehow engaged in some sort of sexual immorality. I don't believe that's true. You're Christians. You have the Spirit of God. Most of you are running from these things, setting them aside from your media, not allowing your music to display them, not pursuing relationships in which you do these things. That's what, where most of you are. But it is a wrestle that we all face, and we must be careful that we do not allow it to overwhelm us because it can even as Christians and even as a church, and we will notice that the church is awash in immorality. I'm not saying this one, but certainly the church as a whole has begun to capitulate to all of the sexual immoralities of our age. For years, churches have been winking at adultery. For years, they've been winking at fornication, that is, having sexual intimacy before you're married or where there's no marriage bond. More recently, the church is now starting to wink at homosexuality and wink at transgenderism, but those are all sexual sin. They're all a, a fundamental denial of who we are as male and female. It's just that transgenderism and homosexuality just put that more in God's face. I, I will not act according to the very body that you've given to me, but already when you commit adultery, you are misusing the intimacy that God provided for you to have in marriage to represent the kind of intimacy you have with him. You've already adulterated yourselves. Don't think that somehow transgenderism and homosexuality are the, are the greatest of all sins, the very obvious, open, evident rebellion. But you were already rebelling if you were committing adultery or if you were sleeping with someone before you were married. 
Or if you're, if you're every, you know, every evening you're, you're wading through the pornographic material that you can get. Or every other kind of immorality that's out there. All kinds of visual immorality. You can commit sexual acts visually with people across the world. You know, second on your phone. Don't think that that's somehow not evil. You know, the drag queen who's coming to the library, that's a pretty evil thing. I get it. And you, you probably ought to walk around and say we shouldn't do that. But do not do that and then go home and swipe on your phone some kind of pornographic material. You are nothing but a hypocrite if you do that. Do not scream on the streets that we will not have homosexuality and transgenderism and at home inv- let it be invaded by pornography and foolish sexual morality in your music and in your media. Don't, do not commit that kind of hypocrisy. And again, I don't think most of you are. Okay, the, the, the strength with which I bring this is simply that this is what our society is doing, even to the point where now, yet again, we have yet another major evangelical, or really the same one in many ways, now saying, hey, I'm going to have a whole conference that says the church has been wrong on homosexuality for 2,000 years, and then Israel was wrong for 4,000 years, and so we're just going to say it's really all fine. And the evangelical church. And yet again, we've been capitulating in these ways for years, unfortunately. We're only going further in this. So we must not, may not, defile the marriage bed. I mean, Ephesians 5 says, but immorality and, or any impurity or, great, or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Not, not just not participated in, not just not viewed on your phone or engaged with, with some other person in any way. It's not even to be named. No filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Again, you can't be shaking your fist at homosexuality and then reading your Fox News and following the links on there. There's hundreds of them which lead you to all kinds of sexually immoral things that you could look at in five seconds. We have to be careful we're not playing the hypocrite. As Christ's church, who is to be pure in every way, even in our speaking. Hebrews 13.4 really all boils down to this. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. There's only one place for the proper expression of sexual intimacy, visually or physically, and that is in marriage alone. It is joyful, delightful, beautiful, special, even though often difficult, in marriage. But that is the only place for it, and we as believers exalt it there. Paul's been dealing with this issue all the way through Chapter 6, chapter 7, as we worked its way through. I mean, you exalt the God who created sexuality by, by abstaining joyfully from sexual engagement in anything that isn't marriage, and you also delight in God and show the world the greatness of God when you delight joyfully in sexual uh, pursuits in marriage sexual intimacy in marriage. And we are a travesty when we, as the church, have horrible marriages where where sexuality is not even part of what we do and we deny one another these things. We're not setting a very good example here. And we need to be more careful. Again, go back to the sermons on 1 Corinthians 7. There's lots of ways we show to the world that sexual purity is a delightful and joyful thing, not some kind of weird, oppressive thing that was placed, foisted upon society by prudes. No, we pursue proper sexual intimacy and we do not defile the marriage bed. Notice it says that defilement to fornicators and adulterers. You can add homosexuality and transgenderism. But the first way the marriage bed is defiled is by those who dishonor it by having sexual intimacy before marriage and then those who have it with someone other than their spouse within marriage. We must see these things eradicated by the Lord's grace. And if we are engaged in them, we must quickly, carefully, and fully repent. That is what we are called to do. 
Again, I would say that the vast majority of you, I'm convinced, are running from immorality. But don't stop. Be careful. Continue to guard yourself. And if you have not run from it but have run into it, you need to repent this morning. The stakes are high, as we will see. As you already saw, 23,000 fell in one day. Interesting notice in in the Old Testament, in Numbers, it said 24,000. Paul says 23,000. Why? Well, we would understand inerrancy to incorporate the rounder numbers, right? 24, 23. We would, we would probably already understand that 24,000 is not the exact number, right? 24,010, 24,001, So we would understand that that lies within the range of numbers that are reported. Certainly, Paul could have been even looking at a different manuscript that had 23,000. We understand that our original manuscripts are inerrant and that the manuscripts we have now, we have a functionally inerrant Bible that we're able to put all those manuscripts together so that it is reliable as inerrant in what we have, but it's not the original manuscript. We do understand that. Again, you have to go back and get some of the teaching on that if, that, if you're like, what is that? But we have an inerrant Bible, yet Paul can say 23,000, and then we can look at a text that says 24,000 and believe that those lie within the range of an acceptable number for an inerrant Bible. So we have 23,000 fall in one day as a result of their sexual immorality, not the pagan people. God wasn't judging the Moabites or the Midianites, he was judging his own people. We must flee idolatry. Well, next we have testing the Lord or trying the Lord. So let's look into our next verse. The next sin that he says we must not do. So no immorality, no idolatry. Do not, he says, verse nine, try the Lord. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Now, here also we have a, an interpretational, really a, a translational and manuscript issue. If you have an ESV, it says, nor let us try Christ. What is test Christ? Well, I would hold, is there are two manuscript traditions. Some of the older manuscripts have do not try the Lord. They have kurios here. Some have do not try Christos, Christ. I would hold, it seems that the best manuscripts have do not test Christ. So your ESV says Christ. I think that's the best manuscript tradition from which to draw that because Paul has already said that the person following them or, or the, uh, the person ministering to them in the wilderness was whom? Christ. He was there as a member of the Trinity. Anything God does, Christ is involved in, of course. And so when they were sinning against the Lord, they were sinning against Christ, right? The one who was specifically and directly leading them and providing them water and providing them manna in doing this, they're sinning against him. Let us not only take Christ as our blessed Redeemer who provides and cares for us, let us also recognize that Christ is our judge. Christ is the one who brings discipline upon sin, I love Jesus, and I love his death for me, and and he's my savior, but I I don't love God. He's mean. I don't love the God of the Old Testament. That's a mean God. The God of the Old Testament is the triune God of whom Jesus is part, and it is he also in the Old Testament who's bringing judgment. In fact, in our next judgment or our next command not to grumble, says they were destroyed by the destroyers. We'll see in just a moment. I'm convinced that's the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord who himself brought destruction in the Old Testament upon sin. You need a broader, more robust understanding of the Trinity and a more robust understanding of Jesus. Do not sin against Christ, the one who died for you, who was buried, who rose on your behalf, the one who in the Old Testament was making provision for them as they wandered in the wilderness. Do not sin against him. Do not take his work on your behalf lightly. What does it mean to try the Lord? Several different ways it's used in Old and New Testaments. We're familiar with this from Matthew 4. It's the same word used where Satan says to Jesus, throw yourself off the temple. And Jesus says, we are not to put 
the Lord God to the test. There's the word put to the test. So trying the Lord can be to force the Lord's hand to exert his power on your behalf when you're being unwise or disobedient. People do that. I'm going to make an unwise financial decision, but God will back me up. I'm going to enter into a relationship. I'm a believer with an unbeliever. Hey, God will work it out. My marriage will be fine. Everything will be okay. So God, I'm going to do this unwise thing. You got my back, right? Well, no, probably not. As far as, is he going to, never is he going to approve of that thing. Now, God is gracious and kind. And we, when we make stupid and foolish decisions, his goodness is such that he cares for us. But there is certainly no guarantee that he's not going to bring his discipline upon you for that very thing when you put it in his face. God, I know this is wrong. I know I'm not supposed to do it. You'll forgive me later. Well, he will. That's true if there's real repentance. But it does not mean that he will not bring his discipline. Please understand that. These are real warnings to real Christians in a real Bible. Do not sanitize the Bible according to what you want it to say. Do not test the Lord. That's one way to test him. Another way to test him, more along the lines of what the Israelites were doing, is to question the Lord or speak or act in any way as an avowed follower of God and a beneficiary of his blessings that sully his character and challenge his power. God, you're the great provider. You're the one who's given us everything, yet I don't like what you've provided. Why have you given me this? I refuse to take this from your hand. You need to change it. Now, let's be careful here, all right? Testing the Lord in this way is a very serious, very strong matter. It would be a little like you have a husband and wife who are at a dinner party and the wife begins to flirt with another man. Kind of like, you know, husband, what are you going to do about this? Testing, trying her husband as it were. Well, we do that with God when we say, God, why would you give me this? I don't want it. I don't like it. What you've given me, I refuse to take from your hand. I know you're a wonderful, powerful God. I claim to be one of your children. Why have you given me this? And so that moves to kind of the third aspect of this, to try the Lord, is to directly question the Lord as to his goodness, to question his motives, to spurn his gracious acts of care and provision, to contradict the Lord to his face and dare him to act. This is not a wise move. What incident is being referred to here? Well, when they did it in the Old Testament here, they were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21. This is a general complaint. They were actively telling God that he had not been good to them. Numbers 21.5. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? God, your motives are wrong. You brought us here to kill us. Beware of telling God that he brought you to kill you, that he brought you out to harm you. Do not put that in God's face. God, my marriage, you just did this to harm me. This bad thing, this bad thing in my life, you did this to harm me. God, you did this. Ooh, Christians don't go there. Don't go there. I'm not saying most of you are. In fact, most of you, I think that's the last thing you would ever think and hopefully that you would ever do. Don't overapply this. This isn't like, well, Lord, I'm wrestling with a difficult job situation and a difficult marriage. That's not testing the Lord. In fact, we're supposed to cry out to God in those, to, to tell him this is hard, this is difficult. Lord, help me even to say why, Lord. He'd at the end in the book of Psalms to do what? God, I trust you. To test the Lord to say, God, you brought me here to kill me. You brought me here to harm me. You put me in this situation because you, you hate me and I hate it. Christians don't do that. And if you do, then you are under God's disciplining hand. He will not have it. He is not that God. He's the God who died for you, cares for you, loves you, provided for you. You may not respond back to him in this way. Why have you brought us out of Egypt? They said, there's no food and no water. Listen to this next. And we loathe this miserable food. There's no food and no water, but we hate the food. It's your teenager wandering through your kitchen. It's nothing to eat. It's you opening up your closet. It's nothing to wear. Okay, it's not exactly the same kind of grumbling. That's not testing the Lord. 
This idea, we, we, we hate, we loathe the provision you have made for us in the manna. We hate it. You brought us here to kill us. This is a direct fire back at the Lord saying, you are not good, you have not made proper provision, and we demand something else. Again, I don't think the vast majority of you would ever even think of doing that. But if you are, and if you do, you need to stop. And as I said, it can be very practical. Lord, I hate this marriage that I've been in for 35 years. You should have done something to change this. You should have given me a different partner. You may not fire back to the Lord. You may cry out, God, help me, strengthen me, give me grace, help me walk through this. But you may not hate the Lord or say the Lord has done something wicked by putting you in a difficult situation. I hate the fact that my child is walking away from God. God, you're harming me. You, you, I did everything right, and, and now you're destroying my family. This is on you. We may not speak to the Lord in such a way. And again, I, I wouldn't imagine that the vast majority of you would even think of it. But let's be careful that we don't. And when we wrestle with those thoughts, what do we do? We confess quickly, Lord, I'm moving in that direction. Guys, track this down with your bitterness and with your anger, with your lack of forgiveness. If you're bitter against God, refusing to forgive others in your life because of sins against you, you're getting close to trying the Lord. I cannot forgive, I will not forgive, I will be bitter and angry because God, this is your fault, even though you wouldn't say it that way. Well, Israel did. You brought us out here to kill us. We loathe what you've given, change it. Well, God did. Well, in this case, one time he sent them meat, it rotted in their mouths and killed them. Here he sends, he says, oh, okay, really? You don't like that provision? Here's some fiery serpents. And they went among them and bit the people and killed them. God does not play. Well, how can God do that? Because they're directly challenging his goodness as his chosen people. I expect the world to challenge the goodness of God. I expect the world to not think that God is good. I expect the world to shake their fist at God. But I must not and you may not. Fiery serpents sent among them fascinating that even in that narrative, what happens, that really becomes a picture of Christ's salvation. When he takes the serpent, puts it up on things, look up there, God is killing you, he's the one that will save you. Well, guys, run to him. Unbelievers shake their fists at God, so you might be an unbeliever this morning. Repent, believe, run to Jesus, but you might be a believer. Don't soften this. You might be a believer doing this. Don't do it for long. God will bring, he brings his discipline for these things. Again, I I can't undo what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, which is because of these things in context, some of you are sick, some of you are, are dying. It's a direct connection to what's happening here. He's giving these examples on purpose. You are dying. You are sick. God is bringing judgment upon you as the Corinthian church because you are acting like Israel. Do not put God to the test. Psalm 78, 18, and in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. I want what I want, not what you have given. Well, if we haven't been convicted by idolatry or immorality or testing the Lord, how about number 10 or verse 10? Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The, the punishment gets even worse in one sense. Now, grumbling here is a really fascinating word. It's a, we call it an uh, onomatopoetic word, which is it sounds like it is. The word is gaguzo. What's maybe like our word murmur, murmur, murmur. They're in their tents, gagoozering. And you're like, well, what's the difference between trying the Lord and, and murmuring? Well, this is a little more indirect. It's what your kids do when they know they can't shake their fist at you. They just complain about everything that happens. 
Well, guys, we tend to do this as well. Now, be careful again. I don't want to over-apply this. The fact that you are concerned that your car didn't start this morning or, you know, you really wish you had some nicer things and you're like, Lord, that's not this kind of grumbling. He's not going to send a destroyer on you because you wrestle to appreciate things that God has given. This is a deep, heart-set murmuring at the goodness of God and saying, God, I will not be content. I refuse. In this circumstance, I cannot and will not be content, and I will continue to murmur against you. Now, that kind of murmuring is very serious. Because, again, we're saying God. But we're not, we're not, we're not shouting it out to him. We're not telling anybody else. It's kind of in our hearts, in our tents. Murmur, murmur, or doing this all the time. It's a heart attitude. That might be you. Again, I don't think it's most of you. Again, we, mur- we grumble. You and I both grumble. Why did that happen? Lord, I wish that hadn't happened. I w- as, as, we, as we trust in the Lord, we recognize those things like, Lord, I know you're good. I'm just wrestling with, that's not this. But let be careful because you are a couple steps away from that. Again, in your marriage, again, in your family, again, in your job, again, in your, Lord, you're just not good. And it's an inner heart attitude that begins to settle in which says, God, I hate what you've done. Numbers 11, which is most likely what he's referring to here, where the destroyer destroys them. They again were murmuring about the food. There was some fire that happened and began to burn people up. And then they said in Numbers 11, verse 5, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Of course it was free. It was given to them by their slave masters who were beating them to build, you know, to make bricks to build the pyramids. Well, pyramids were probably already there, but whatever else they were building. Well, sure, it was free meat. Here, free meat to my slave labor. They just forgot to add that part. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. It's gracious provision from your hand that we get every day. It sickens us. And in their heart, the grumbling was happening. Well, they, God sent a plague. Right? He, he ended up giving them more meat, which then simply in their, in their very mouths brought his own plague. And he says here, it's revealed to us. It does not say this, by the way, in Deuteronomy or in, in Numbers and Exodus. It does not say that it was the destroyer that was doing it. It talks about the Lord sending or bringing these things. But in our text, in verse chapter 10, it says they were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, if you have an ESV, there's a capital D. Why? Because they're considering that this is God, and I think they're right. The angel of the Lord is often in the Old Testament the destroyer. The angel of the Lord is the one who killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night, erased them, and oftentimes brought judgment. And who is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Almost always it is Jesus, the one who brings salvation and the one who brings judgment. I mean, you will stand. The world will stand. Before whom at the judgment seat? They will stand before the Lord Jesus, and he will send them away to eternal hell if they're not believers. Well, what Paul is saying here is that it was the Lord Jesus who was judging them, and the Lord Jesus who will bring judgment upon his church, discipline upon his church when we sin against him by grumbling this heart-set, deep-seated complaining against the Lord. Thistleton says this, in context, the concept is not petty complaints as such, but the constant grudging, carping, querulous moaning, which transformed the bold, glad self-perception of those whom God had redeemed from Egypt, from a lifestyle, in, from, from a new lifestyle, into a self-pitying, false perception of themselves as victims on whom God had weighed heavy burdens and trials, in contrast to a fantasy life of ideal existence in Egypt or the world. That's this kind of grumbling. And we must be careful that we never engage in a heart 
that is hateful against our God because he has given us Christ and he has given us salvation and he's given us life and he's given us breath and he's given you so many other good things. We must not build into our lives this heart of grumbling because God takes it seriously when you do. I gave you Jesus. I've given you everything. I've given you my spirit and you're going to spend all your time grumbling against me and you think that that doesn't matter to God. Of course it matters to God. And it matters when Christians do it. And yes, we may be forgiven. That's the thing. We run to Jesus to be forgiven for these things. But it is that same Jesus who will bring his discipline upon his church when they adulterate or when they at least at least take his sacrifice and consider it worthless or of little value in comparison to our own comfort or our own desires or the things that we wanted temporally in this life. He says, I've given you eternal life. I've given you my spirit. I've given you salvation, and it's not, it's not enough. Because I know this is hard. I wrestle with grumbling as you and with trying the Lord as you. And yet, we have no excuse. So we sent among them the destroyer, and it was the destroyer that destroyed them. Well, to finish, Paul just, he, he lays, he reminds them again in verse 11, as I will remind you, that we are to heed God's instructions. Look at verse 11. Again, he tells them, it's like he told them at the beginning, this is an example, and then he goes through these really hard examples, and it's almost like they're like, no, no, no. That was Israel. That's not going to happen to us. Why'd you just bring this? We're just going to ignore that. Look what he says in verse 11, as a good pastor. Now, these things happen to them as an example. It says the exact same thing, almost exactly, means the same. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You want to try to get away from this? You want to try to, well, Paul, you're just bringing, you know, these false accusations, or you're just making up stuff in your own head. Paul says, no, I'm not. Those things were written down. Go check the book. And when you find them there, understand that you need to change your behavior because God wrote this down so that you would change. Guys, I I challenge you with the same thing. If you're wrestling with what I've said this morning, go look at the book. It's written down. It's all right there. I didn't invent any of it. It's all right there. The weight of it, in fact, I couldn't even communicate to you. There's any way I could, I could communicate the strength of this language. The Spirit of God will have to do that. But it's all there. It's written, and it was written for your instruction. That's our doctrine of Scripture. Notice he says, on whom the end of the ages have come. What's the implication of that? Seems to be, look, you're the final dispensation. You're the, you're the final period of time before Jesus comes. Everything's been done. You see, when they were there in the Old Testament, it wasn't all done yet. You're looking ahead to the coming of Christ. So it's almost like, all right, they did that, and they were yet looking to the Redeemer. You have the Redeemer, and you're still sinning in the same way? How can you do this? You have everything that you need and everything written down. We don't need anything else written down. We won't get anything else written down. This is it. We have everything we need. Even in the Old Testament, they didn't have it all written down yet. We have everything, all of the blessings, all of the writings, so we have no excuse because it's hard to get it. We have no excuse for God's people, and this is what we do when we have all the written instructions and all the power of the Spirit of God and all the providing work of Jesus because all we're waiting for is for Jesus to return. I mean, we're actively pursuing him, loving him, serving him, evangelizing, but there's no more work to be done. It's all done. What what are you waiting for to be holy? What are you waiting for to love Jesus? What are you waiting for to lay aside sin? There's nothing to wait for. There's no second blessing you need. You have all the blessing you need. The Spirit of God has been freely bestowed, and the Word of God has been totally given. And so we need to take these warnings to heart in light of the blessings that we've been given as a people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and 
Thank you for the work you've done in Christ. And I thank you for your forgiveness when we fail at these things utterly. When in our thinking we try you, when in our actions we grumble, when we are lustful and, and, and pursue desires which are displeasing to you, when we put idols of our hearts up before you, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we grieve over these things. We hate this sin. We're your people. Help us not in any way to allow these sins to settle into our hearts, lives, churches in a way that seems to have, have been permeating Corinth or permeating the Old Testament Israelites. Father, we long to honor you by being a people that reflects your character. And might you grant us grace to accomplish this task in this coming week. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.